0: My name is William Minor, and this is The American Immigrant, the podcast about immigration in America. My guest today is Lori Nessel. She is professor of law at the Seton Hall University Law School in Newark, New Jersey. She's also the director of Seton Hall's Center for Social Justice, which provides free legal assistance to some of the most economically disadvantaged people in our community, including many immigrants. Ms. Nessel uh, has a Bachelor of Arts from UC Santa Cruz and a law degree from the City University of New York. Ms. Nessel, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Uh, why don't you start off by letting the audience know a little bit about where you grew up and what led you into a career in, in, in asylum and immigration law?
1: Sure. Um, so I grew up in New York City um, and um, went to public school um, uh, you know, from elementary through high school. Uh, and then decided I wanted to go out to California um, uh, I think just wanting something very very different from what I had seen growing up so I went to Santa Cruz um, for college and once I was there I ended up um, being sort of fascinated by and pulled into all of the change that was taking place in Central America, uh, particularly in Nicaragua around that time in the uh, mid to late 80s. I ended up spending a year in Nicaragua, um, and I was studying the impact of uh, war on children and the different ways in which uh, children experience war, comparing children that had fled from El Salvador, a country still at war, and were living within Nicaragua, and the Nicaraguan children who, although they were experiencing the Contra War at that point, were still in their home country and I was collecting children's artwork and, and stories um, and in case, what do you remember
0: most about, uh, about your time there in Nicaragua
1: one of the memories that really stands out in my mind was um, I volunteered at an elementary school and I was asked to um, announce the uh, to, to confer the degrees of graduation at this elementary school and um you know I was nervous about getting all the names right and going down the list and practicing and I was very focused on that not wanting to mispronounce anyone's name and then as the graduates came up they were all adults they were all older than me because everyone had been illiterate and this was their first chance to come to school to become literate and people were getting health care for the first time and people were getting access to to land and farming Um, and it was just it was an incredible time and um, and then I traveled around uh, to different parts of the country, and you know, in addition to seeing uh, what it was like for the Nicaraguans, then seeing what it was like for the Salvadorans who were living in refugee camps and displaced within another country, at that. Time they were very hopeful that there was going to be this incredible social change in their country and then they would return. Um, that, that of course didn't happen. Um, so it was, it definitely things were, it was a different feeling amongst the Salvadoran community than the Nicaraguan. Um, but it really, really opened my eyes I think incredibly to, um, you know, to issues of, of justice and governance and, you know, just things that obviously growing up here and in Manhattan you, you, you might take for granted. Um, you know,
0: did you end up working with the with the Salvadoran and Nicaraguan community back in the United States when you returned?
1: I did. Um, so I returned to California, to Santa Cruz, um, to finish my, um, my college work. And at that point um, was when there was the Sanctuary Movement. And so, because this was around the time where... As Can you people, just
0: briefly explain what that was? Oh,
1: sure. Um, so it was largely a, a religious-based movement, but um, it it was um it was sort of an attempt to welcome people that were not being welcomed at all by our government at the time so in other words um we're talking about the 80s and the late 1980s um, this was a period where there were uh you know civil wars occurring um, throughout central america and it seemed that anyone who was fleeing basically, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the majority of people who were fleeing from a country where the U.S. was backing the government were just being by and large precluded from safety in our country. And so there were so many people that were coming up by land from, um, you know, from El Salvador um, and from, you know, other Guatemala, from other countries in Central America. And um, our, our government was not welcoming them. And so there was a religious-based movement um, to offer sanctuary, to take people in, to provide them with housing, to help them find jobs.
0: And so Central Americans come to the United States to avoid being harmed in their home country. Uh, but this isn't limited to people from Central America. People from around the world come to the United States to avoid situations of war or violence. Um, and and one way of... of being able to remain in the United States is by applying for what's called asylum. Can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Uh, To qualify for asylum, uh, what what can be hard is that it's not enough to show that You could even convince a judge, like, that you would be killed if sent back to your country, that your life is on the line. That's not enough to be protected under our laws. For asylum, you have to both show this very high level of fear and danger if you're sent back, but you also have to connect that with, um, there are only five sort of acceptable reasons, And, and, and that's what can be challenging. So the fear that you have or the harm has to be based on either your race, your nationality, your religion, your political opinion or something called the membership in a social group and and that's basically um that's what can be really challenging
0: i think this is something that's very important for our listeners um and it's something that i would i would bet many people do not know is that you can prove that you as you said before that you are going to be killed right but that won't keep you in the country.
1: And, and that's exactly right. I mean, I, um, I think of a, a case that illustrates that, which is from, from a number of years ago and, and thankfully, ultimately, uh, had, had a happy ending. But it, this was an incredible case because it was a woman from um, Democratic Republic of Congo. And she fled after... A lifetime of abuse at the hands of, of her husband, and it was in a country where domestic violence is, um, you know, incredibly high rates of domestic violence. And what um,
0: kind of what kind of abuse had she gone through?
1: You know, uh, rape, physical beatings, being left unconscious. I mean, by the time that um, that she managed to get uh, to our borders where she you know begged for protection and said my husband will kill me if you send me back Um, just the photo of her that the government had at the time I mean her teeth were missing her eyes were blackened Uh, there's no question as to the abuse that she had been through Um, when someone comes to this country and they don't like her right she didn't have a valid uh, immigration document for entering the country Um, so if you come with no documentation or documentation that isn't valid um, normally you would be sent right back. But if you say, like she did, please, I'll be killed, I fear for my life, then what happens is you're sent um, to a detention center. So in this case, it was right here in Elizabeth.
0: So right after this woman fled being abused and raped um, and and left for dead, uh, she had to go right into prison.
1: Exactly, and she remained there for years. And it's, you know, it's... Uh, I, I mean that it's an incredibly difficult situation right because you have people who have just fled the most traumatic experiences and rather than being able to you know connect them with um, organizations that might be willing even you know as volunteers to help them to provide counseling and therapy and help deal with post-traumatic stress disorder and, and anything like that um, they're put into what's essentially a prison, a detention center and in her case, um, she sought asylum based on this domestic violence and um, the uh, the judge that denied her asylum protection, you know, in her findings said, I find her to be incredibly forthright and credible. You know, no question as to is this woman making it up. The judge completely believed her. The judge said that um, she thought she, you know, that she would be killed if she were sent back to her country, but she said, I don't have any way to protect her because I don't believe that the reason that her husband abused her is because he believes she belonged to a particular social group of Congolese women who are against domestic violence. The judge said, the judge felt terrible about it, but she said, you know, I'm ordering her to be sent back to, to her country.
0: And I think a lot of people listening would think that's crazy. Yeah. That, that, that someone would would endure this and, and our laws you know, would kind of create a situation in which she couldn't be
1: protected. Exactly. And and then the the reason we were able to, to save her life, I mean, it came to a point where um, the government actually had told her, she was in detention, and they said, you know, get your bag together, we have your plane. They, you know, the government charters planes to deport people. And she had a few hours until she was going to be sent back to her death. There was no question. She was you know, everyone believed this guy was waiting for her and would kill her. Um and then we were able to get an emergency stay from the Third Circuit because there was um The Third Circuit sorry
0: court yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, higher it's a, level
1: higher uh, level. It's
0: um, it's an appeals court uh that that operates uh in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware.
1: Exactly. And uh so and, and that's because there was um, the U.S. doesn't sign very many um, international human rights treaties or conventions. But the U.S. did agree to be bound by the United Nations Convention Against Torture, and um, for years it was not quite clear what that meant. Um, but there, uh, there is a provision within that convention that allow that says that the U.S. can't um, send someone back to a country where they would be tortured. And when it finally became clear how someone could kind of use that to protect themselves, which is to um, apply for protection to an immigration judge, uh, we were able to get uh, emergency help from the um, from the court in order to keep her here. And ultimately, we were able, it's interesting because we went before the same judge that had denied her protection under asylum. This judge was thrilled, really, to grant her relief under the Convention Against Torture, um, and, and so that's in part because um, the torture convention doesn't require that you connect the torture that you would face to one of those particular grounds, could be for any reason. So it gave this judge a way to save this woman's life, um, and that was wonderful, and it allowed this woman to be released from what's essentially a prison, a detention facility where she had been for two and a half years. At the same time, Um, because of the way the U.S. has um, uh, taken this international convention and put it into our own domestic law, Um, there's no ability, uh, it doesn't allow for family reunification. So if this woman had been granted asylum, she could have immediately applied to bring her children, she had five children, in hiding. She could have brought them here. But if she's protected because the judge thinks she'd be tortured if sent back, It doesn't lead to any permanent safety for her, like it doesn't lead to a green card or citizenship or anything like that, like asylum does. Also doesn't allow you to reunify, to ever bring your children here, unless you find some other way to do it. That put our client in an impossible situation because her choice was to go forward to the upper level court again and keep trying to get that asylum protection. But in doing that, she might lose that torture convention protection, which is what saved her life. So she sort of had to choose between uh, her safety and and the chance to see her children again. Um, she ultimately decided to, to proceed on to save her children, um, and thankfully the case finally settled and we were able to get her asylum so she could reunify with, with her children.
0: So she was able to bring her, her kids over? Uh, yes. Um, I want to move a little bit into another area that, that you... Um, work uh, a lot uh, with which is called something called medical repatriation very uh, I'm guessing very few people uh, know about right. this so can you just explain a little bit about what it is
1: sure so um, right term medical repatriation or we sometimes refer to it as medical deportation um, basically when we use those terms what we're talking about is a situation where uh, an immigrant finds themselves in um, very, very ill and in a hospital and um, is facing the hospital trying to to remove them, basically, to their home country without their consent or against their will. Um, Basically what happens is that under our laws, um, hospitals, almost all hospitals, are required to accept anyone in an emergency situation for treatment. Doesn't matter if the person doesn't have health insurance, if they're here and are undocumented. Virtually all hospitals, hospitals that receive any, like, federal Medicaid funding, have to take people for emergency situations. Um, what happens then is that um, once the person, once it's no longer considered to be an emergency, person might actually still be in critical condition, but this is like a question of the terminology. If it's no longer considered to be an emergency, then what happens is um, the hospital doesn't know what to do with this. And so what's happening is sometimes hospitals are... Uh, looking, looking for a solution, and then private companies have cropped up—an increasing number of these private repatriation companies that say to hospitals, "Look, just you pay us, and we'll take this person off your hands. We have our own jets, and we'll send them back to their country." And they put pressure on the consulates to get the papers in order. And um, for example, there was a case um, out of um, Iowa i believe where there were two workers um uh you know terribly injured again you know brain injuries they were comatose and um been in the u.s for for many many years they were in the hospital comatose and then next thing they knew they were back in um, i believe that case was back to mexico Um, and so there was an issue well how could they have consented they were comatose how can you literally there are cases where people in comas are put onto planes and just if they wake up at all it's in some other country um and and, of course these
0: are private planes so they're kind of avoiding any exactly right
1: right and in that case there was an issue as to you know there's a lot of pressure being put on the family members uh maybe the hospital says oh the family member consented the family member says no we, we definitely didn't consent to this but so one of the things that's very very important is to uh, to just a simple letter, but that says I do not consent to to a repatriation in this case, and that that be given to all the the necessary people at the hospital. Um, and then,, uh, depending on how the person wants to handle it, I mean, some of the things that have been successful, we found we found some of the consulates are, are really helpful if, again, if it's communicated and really clear that this um, that this isn't what the person wants, that there aren't adequate facilities. I mean, there should be investigation made to see what kind of treatment this person is going to get. Um, and so uh, communicating with the consulate, also the media, either having, getting media involved and some attention put on the hospital that's thinking of doing this. Um, We've spoken to activists that have said that when there's a case like this, they've stationed just people with their iPhones um, by the side doors, garbage exits to the hospital, and they've had cases where someone's been wheeled out, and then they see everyone there with their phones, and they wheel them back in.
0: Um, So this sounds um, kind of scary for many uh, many people who are here, especially those without any documentation, um, should this deter them from going to the hospital? De-
1: definitely not. And and that's, um, you know, I'm so glad you asked that because definite that, that definitely shouldn't be the message. I mean, people, um, everyone has a right to, to medical care, to certainly in an emergency situation, everyone, no one should think twice. People should go to hospitals and get the treatment that they're entitled to. Um, if there's any issue, I think that what's important is for people to just think about things in advance, not so that they stay home and don't go to the hospital, but maybe that they, you know, have some thought as to uh, if if there's being pressure put on on them to send a loved one back to the home country for them to know uh, they don't have to do that, right? And there is an issue of consent. And... Um, to think about who could they contact, who were like people in their area, um, we put up a uh, a website, um, a medical repatriation um, website, along with New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, and we need to post some more materials. But you know what we're trying to do is just get enough materials out there that people. Because people have to act very quickly, and that they'll be able to to get information and make informed decisions um, as to what they want to do, and not and not be pressured or told that they have no choice and that this is what they have to do. Because it's 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 you know when people for all of us that's when we're at our most vulnerable moment when either we or a loved one is is seriously ill, um, and so we want to make sure that people don't just feel pressured and think this is what they have to do.
0: I I know we're running kind of short on time here. So just uh, we do, um, we do have a presidential election coming up. Um, What do you want to see happen? What do you want to see the candidates talk about? And what do you hope? uh, What kind of change do you hope happens?
1: You know, it's it's hard because um, you know obviously we need comprehensive immigration reform. That has been that's been the case for such a long time, though, um, and you know, I am sure, like you know, many, many others, like had a lot of hope with the Obama administration that we were going to see comprehensive immigration reform, a more humane and just system, um, and you know, it, it's it's been a, a mixed bag. I mean, certainly, you know, there was the DACA program and the attempted um, uh, second program um, like that that to make it a little broader and include parents, but. Um, uh, but there have also been record high numbers of deportations, and so um, you know certainly what I, I would hope for is um, you know that we don't see. I guess what I'm what I'm I'm absolutely like beyond terrified of you know of the possibility of um, you know the elections going a certain way where you know where we're looking at just uh, vilifying immigrants, fear mongering. Uh, that would be the worst possible thing on, on all levels. And um, so I think you know what we need is, we certainly need comprehensive immigration reform. We need a system that works better. Um, we need to recognize the connections between US um, domestic and foreign policy and history and flows of people that need to come here, and we also you know, it's cliche, but we're, we're a nation of immigrants. We've always needed immigrants. Immigrants have built our country. Um, and um, to, to keep uh, being competitive, we need immigrants. So, um, just to really focus on both laws that will work for immigrants um, and for us on all levels, and then also, though, just a change in how immigrants are viewed and a move away from. The kind of you know uh, hate mongering and fear and just quickly associating immigrants with anything that we are afraid of. There's a um, a quote uh, that that I love that I often use in my class, which is that immigration law is like a window into our national psyche, and and you really see that historically over time. You know when our immigration laws are sort of most welcoming during periods of relative calm and economic prosperity, and then for different reasons, whether it's you know, post 9-11 for national security reasons, or in the 1950s, or you, know, you see the periods where we're very fearful or economic crisis, and then there's the sort of blame the immigrants and trying to kind of steal, uh, you know, uh, have, have less immigrants coming into the country. Um, and so, you know, I guess I hope that our, I think our national psyche is in a scary place right now. So, so I hope that our national psyche moves to a more positive place, and along with that our immigration laws.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Once again, Lori Nessel is a professor of law at Seton Hall University Law School in Newark, uh, New Jersey, and is a director of Seton Hall Center for Social Justice. Ms. Nessel, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: My name is William Menard, and this is The American Immigrant.